0: Welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness, a conversation on spirituality, sobriety, and the inner life, and developing a way of life that's built on balance and presence and connectivity and thriving, and uh, with the added component of a good dose of Orthodox Christian spirituality sprinkled in here and there. Uh, Sometimes like too much salt, and sometimes like just a little bit of basil, who knows. Uh, Welcome to my show, and to the listener, I'd like you to meet Zach Guzman from Mind Renewal in Colorado Springs, Colorado, an exquisite human being and healer and neurofeedback practitioner and um, many other things. Uh, And uh, before I uh, get lost in my own adulations, would you like to say a little bit about who you are as a person, as a practitioner, what's your corner of like the healing, spiritual, sobriety world?
1: Oh my gosh, what a loaded question. (laughs) A loaded way to introduce somebody. But first off, thank you for for having me um, and getting a chance to share my world a little bit. Um, For those of you who don't know, Reese and I, can I say this, are childhood friends. So, We met at a park in Flagstaff, Arizona years ago. Um, Both of us come from moms who made the commitment of, the wild and crazy commitment of homeschooling. (laughs) And had they not made that choice, we probably would have never even crossed paths because who is at a park on a weekday just having a grand old time playing on playground equipment instead of doing schoolwork? (laughs) Yep. <laughs> more often yep. than not, that was my homeschool experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, very much so. I, yeah. I, I, think, I think we may have like the most providential relationship uh, out of anyone on the show. Well, there was the guy that I met at the river, but, um, but yeah, there's just like a whole lot of things. There's like a whole lot of ways we like almost didn't meet and then like almost didn't stay in touch. So that we have been really good friends for most of our lives now, I think is really special.
1: In answer to your question about like my introduction, how I want to introduce myself, um, well, it wasn't really a question; it was just an invitation. I I, I like to think of my journey at my practice um, just as an ever evolving one, and where I'm currently at is the acknowledgement of focusing a little bit more on the fact that we are we are more than a we are more than our mental health. And as a mental health professional, you know, your, your initial or my initial motivation was making sure I understood how to screen for specific symptomologies and how to apply the DSM to my client's conditions and making sure the diagnosis I assigned was in alignment with their current truth, if you will um, making sure medication management was supportive of the treatment goals, et cetera. It's so much dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's and, and it's so cognitive heavy that you can get lost in thinking that the mental health of a person should be the focus. And I would say that I'm much more in alignment with the idea that we have to be examining The physical health, the emotional health, the psychological health, the the spiritual health of a person and how we as providers address the complexities of those different aspects of a person, of what makes up a person. Um, The deeper we can go with people, the more efficient we can provide uh, guidance towards the solutions that they really need. So mind renewal exists to be able to, well, it's in the name, mind renewal is intentionally spelled the way it is because of the neurological component to mental health and and the neurofeedback emphasis or not emphasis, but kind of hybrid approach that I've taken to kind of fuse together more formal psychotherapy modalities with a neurologically based type of treatment that complement each other very well. Um, I could probably say 100% of my clients are coming to me with anxiety listed as one of their primary concerns. I mean, and if you really think about it, we entered the world (laughs) in a state of fear. I've watched three children, my own, be born, and I don't think they were screaming the way they were screaming because they were emotionally hurting. (laughs) This was fear. You know, and so we become abundantly aware from the moment that we come into this world that death is inevitable, that danger is present, you know, just kind of not lurking around every corner, but anything can be perceived as a, as a dangerous thing. And so uh, what I'm getting to is the, is the fact that if, if we can calm someone's anxiety which is under the umbrella of fear, what spirit can we then provoke when anxiety is absent? And so because neurofeedback does such a great job in my experience with my clients and my, my own self at helping to kind of quiet the noise and really evaluate what the anxiety is related to, um, you can then invite the option of, inviting a different spirit into the life of a person to kind of operate than to kind of run the show. Um, and so I, in that regard, I really do feel like the, the mental health field needs to address the importance of how our mind, how our thoughts, how our beliefs do influence the spirit that we occupy. Um, not the spirit that we occupy. The spirit occupies the body, but the spirit of the person—that who we who we really are—and so I'm still on this journey of discovering myself. You know what, to what depth I can go with my clients to finding truth and meaning and living an abundant life, and I'm, I'm trying to remain forever and always open to just how deep I can go in those connections. So that's what Mind Renewal is about. Um, I've been around since 2019 and just recently partnered with the local university here to, to take on some interns as, as early as this upcoming fall. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm excited for the opportunity to be able to teach and share and learn from the, the students that make the decision to come here for their practicum work.
0: That's super exciting. I, I, I've gotten to do supervision as well, and I, I really enjoy it. So I'm really, I'm really glad you get that opportunity. There's so much rich stuff that you, were just, uh, that you were just saying there, and I want to ask a lot about it. Uh, First off, though, it's been a little bit since we've talked to her about neurofeedback on the show, and uh, as, as for as often as you and I have talked about it, and as much as I'm pretty sold on it, I still have like the hardest time explaining concisely just what it is, because it's just... Would you be able to say, uh, what is neurofeedback?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, another loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... I've had practice at this because, you know, obviously in order to treat, we have to have informed consent and a lot of my clients are young. So I'm going to do my best to explain it in a way that the general audience could understand. Um, The overarching goal of neurofeedback is really to promote a calmer central nervous system. Um, This would be the part of the brain that governs life (laughs) automatically. You know, you don't have to sit here. You could, and many people do, and it's a good practice to focus on your breathing and the patterns of breathing, how how long your inhales to exhale ratios are. Um, you don't have to sit here and think about your blood pressure, whether it's high or low. Your your brain does that for you. Uh, your body core temperature is regulated by the autonomic nervous system, and the whole point of neurofeedback is to get that system operating more efficiently. And so the two main tasks of the brain, can I keep going on this? Yes, please. Okay, um, the, first, the first task of the brain is, like I just said, to keep you alive. And the second task is to make you thrive. So inherently, we're actually competitive. And we get this in science, you know, survival of the fittest, That that, that phrase, is an inherent one that we understand. And so when people say, you know, I'm not a competitive person, I'm like, oh, that's BS. Even if you're a passive competitive person, scrolling on your Instagram or your TikTok or whatever form of social media, you're, you're subconsciously making assessments about yourself and how you measure up to the rest of the world. And so when young people come in and they say, you know, I've got this depression, I've got this anxiety. One of the first uh, questions I ask is, you know, well, what are you doing with your time? What are your senses inputting? And how are your senses responding to that input from a central nervous system kind of lens? You know, like how, it, how is the autonomic nervous system processing the information and then responding cognitively to how it needs to alter behavior to be better? Um, so here's the depiction or the illustration I like to use for what neurofeedback is like okay the brain requires feedback for learning and most of us not all are gifted with five senses to make that happen sight sound smell taste and touch i like to use the illustration of a child expressing the desire to learn how to ride a bike And this is actually a concept that Siegfried Othmer at EEG info uses to help the general population understand how it works. A couple of things before you can teach someone how to do something is the motivation to learn has to be there. This is why in the therapy world, motivational interviewing is one of the first things we do. We assess willingness for the person to learn because we know that one's will, which is a free gift, is something that cannot be extracted from anybody. Now, drugs and medications and other destructive activities, not that drug use is always destructive, but you know some destructive activities will kind of impair our judgment to exercise what would be otherwise our own organic free will. But it remains the same that free will has to be intact for a person. And that will has to be in alignment with the goals that you put in front of your client. So back to the point, (laughs) if a child's like, I want to learn how to ride this bike, dad, you know, or mom, they get on the bike and then immediately the brain engages with what it has to do to not fall over because it's following the first order of the brain, which is to keep the person alive. So then the caretaker's job is to make that person feel safe on the bike. So the brain doesn't have to worry about am I gonna die? It's only focused on, I'm going to thrive. I'm going to learn how to do this task. And in real time, the brain is using its auditory and visual cortex to assess what it has to do to achieve the ability to balance within motion. And if you were to scan a brain on a Monday, of of a child learning a new task, like riding a bike, and then again on a Wednesday, and then again on a Friday, you're going to see these different neural networks shifting, and the brain's going to literally look different. And how empowering is that for the client to recognize you are not a diagnosis? You struggle with symptoms of a diagnosis, but this is not who you are. And so neurofeedback would be nothing without this phenomenon of neuroplasticity. The idea that we are dynamic. We are neurologically dynamic always, even unto death, up, up to the point of death. Um, so yeah, the that, that's the basic concept. You give the client feedback. You attach electrodes to parts of the brain that you recognize based off of their symptomologies, um, maybe based off of their brain map where they might need some training. And, and that's what, it, what we call it. We don't call it, you know, it, you can call it neurotherapy for sure. But it, essentially, you're, you're training the brain to communicate with different parts in a more efficient manner with the overarching goal that regulation will be better achieved. We rely on the brain's propensity for better to do that work. And do not ask me the nuts and bolts of <laughs> how that change occurs on a neurological level. But we know that it does. I mean, we know that will has to be intact. And so you don't have to be a neurofeedback provider to be able to use some of these concepts in standard forms of therapy. All we have to do as providers is when we see the will lacking is ignite that will through strengths-based lenses and empowerment theory and models to get the person believing that they're worthy of what they've settled for, or they're worthy of what they believe to be a forever state of mind and of mental, emotional, physical, spiritual health. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, if that's a good, comprehensible way of describing what it is. This is a fusion of what I've heard plus what I've experienced firsthand.
0: Uh Yeah. i follow uh, i think it makes sense and if i and if i'm following some of the technical aspects of a little bit uh, i think maybe maybe some of us who know a little bit about neurofeedback we we think of like like the wires attached to the brain and the screen and the monitoring and everything but if i'm hearing right part of what what the technology is is really like a technological aid to the inner observation and like you're talking about a major component of it is Becoming an observer in your own life, in your own brain, in your own mind, observing changes as they happen, observing the will, observing the motivation, observing the strengths, maybe observing the anxiety, the sources of that, and everything. And and I'm imagining maybe a lot of high compatibility with uh, internal family systems. That's that's my soapbox lately because I really love that that framework. But it's it's very much built on that same principle of I can become an observer in my own life and I can observe. And interact with in a healing way all of the different parts of me you know are those like actual separate parts or is that more of like a a language construct Eh, who knows but like there's a sense of (laughs) i can understand myself as this collection of different different modes different aspects different ways of being uh my anxiety is a part of me my anger is a part of me my creativity is a part of me and if i can observe those as kind of distinct within me i'm not as subject to them And, and there might be, there might be healing possible as well. So. Well said.
1: Absolutely. I liked how you just immediately adopted my, what I was trying to communicate in terms of how it's applicable to, to other forms of therapy like IFS. Absolutely. And, and it's so empowering to watch, watch the client recognize what they actually do have control over. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the deception of you know i'm i'm helpless learned helplessness is a thing on so many different levels and and that's uh mm-hmm. that's what i love is uh, it, you're really enhancing a meditative state
0: yeah to be and able to have a,
1: that.
0: yeah and it seems like a, a either a goal or definitely an outcome of a lot of meditation and again whether it's uh Neurofeedback or technologically driven or called meditation or called prayer or called inner silence, something about going inward seems to result in a greater confidence. Like you're getting in touch with the actual, the actual authentic you, the actual essence of you. It's not this or that energy, it's not this or that interest or hobby or you know, sexual pursuit or anything. It's it's this inner observer, calm, confident, curious, you, the image of God that that is in you and people who spend time there in that inner spot seems to be more calm more confident across the board uh i mean not like imperviously so i mean stuff goes wrong but right. um, so then from your perspective so thinking about what you're saying about the brain's drive to survive to, to thrive so in a situation like like addiction or like obsession or like compulsive behaviors and that's that's the population I work with a lot, and that's those are the topics I'm interested in. <laughs> so that's why I turn everything back there. What so what go what goes wrong then? What goes wrong to lead people to form those kinds of you know, very goal driven relationships with like a drug or destructive behavior or or even something like 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 food, but to an unhealthy way. Couple things, you know. I think a lot.
1: A lot of it depends on kind of where you're at in life. Uh, And what I mean is working with a lot of youth, young people um, in and out of detention facilities or on their way to more serious, longer term commitments in the system at a higher levels of care, more restrictive levels of care as they fuse, they fuse and need the sense of belonging which is on Maslow's hierarchy with a drug. This is one option. This is one possible route of an outcome. And, and it, it's, a, it's an important one to consider that when you fuse a sense of belonging with a substance uh, and an example of that would be, um, there are specific family members that I know I have to be a little bit more conscientious of myself around because of certain tendencies to adopt behaviors I've abandoned individually. Um, and it goes back to the fact that some of, some of my fondest memories with these people involved a substance. And so the body remembers that, wants to form that connection and it will, will betray you no matter how cognitive heavy you are, no matter how driven you are by uh, better patterns of, of health um, and I almost feel autonomic because belonging is not a want, we're social creatures, it's a need. And so for this young generation of clients that I'm working with who are not only involved in drug use and abuse, but you know, other dangerous risk-taking behaviors that harm other members of the community, are doing it in gang-affiliated ways, um, a sense of belonging with a group of people who are up to the same goals, who are up to the same moral compass and or operate from the same moral compass or lack thereof. <laughs> and when you, when you begin understanding their stories, that common theme emerges that the sense of belonging has to be severed if they're going to make any longer-term change. And so you can look at it as, you know, you can ask the, the, the question in front of you, what relationship are you going to have to drugs when you leave this detention facility? And that's a stupid question because it really depends on, it's not a stupid question. Sorry, that came across as very black and white. But, but the, the, the more important question to ask is what am I going to do to help you support an alternative sense of belonging with other healthy people. And it's not that you are demanding they abandon their previous senses of belonging. That's up to them to make that decision. But if as a system we're not providing another alternative, I might as well just say you you should just stay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to go back to, you know, what you were talking about earlier about saying we're, we're more than our cognitive health and, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe the, the <laughs> is it a stupid question or not? I don't know. Uh, it's maybe a very, well, maybe the question gets asked from like a place of limited insight, but it, but it, it's getting at something important, this sense of, we're not just our minds. Uh, so then, you know, drug use, uh, you know, compulsive sexual behavior, you know, problematic eating patterns. They're not just bad choices. And the, the the cure of them, the treatment of them, the management of them, the healing from them. It's not going to be just a simple like, oh, I need to learn some new information. I mean, probably some new information never hurt anyone, but you know, we don't get into these problems logically, or because we we wake up one day and say, "Hmm, today I want to become a drug addict. Uh, There's a lot of there's a lot of life, often a lot of pain that brings us there, or you know, I've been. Uh, working my way through Gabor Monte's new book the the myth of normal which I think could have also been titled the myth of the individual but you know one of the points he's making is that uh, you know people are intrinsically connected to the societies around them and to the environments around them and you know what we're talking about the youth you work with they go through the treatment program and you ask okay so what's your relationship with drugs gonna be when you when you leave here uh, you know there's all of these connected things of like, well, what's your relationship going to be to your people, to your socioeconomic status, to your race, to your gender, to your neighborhood, to your work, to your vocation, to your family of origin? Because all of those things contribute to, to whatever the presenting <laughs> problem was. And, and there's a few dozen other factors that I, I didn't list there. Uh, so, so but, the, but this question of relationships this cluster of relationships. Um, I had an interview with a guy who he, talk, he, he talked about that a lot. Uh, uh, the listener wants to look through the archives for the interview with Ben Klimek, you know, who we talk about like this, this network of relationships that make up every person that ultimately every problem we have is coming out of that network of relationships and could only be healed through maybe a different network of relationships.
1: Absolutely. Right now, my family is in the process of mentoring a young man that finished his sentence, his six-year-long sentence, and, and through really important developmental stages of life, you know, age 18 to 26. <laughs> he gets out, this tall, black dude who should understand the importance of showing up to work every day of the week to make ends meet. Um, robbed himself not going to take accountability off of him robbed himself but through a series of circumstances that led to the decisions he made much of which was outside of control um robbed himself of those valuable learning opportunities and it it was my son ozzy that said dad you got to help him he he's someone that's really worthy of helping (laughs) So, how do you determine that? (laughs) He's a good guy. I know his spirit. I know who he is. I've seen who he is. We've had late night conversations where all of that gangbanging bull goes to the wayside. And in the process of getting to work with him and learn about his world and really empathize and understand that which I never could uh, come to appreciate with just profound respect, the importance of giving thanks for <laughs> the opportunities that I had by, by merit of the fact that my mom and dad remained together and are still together. Just that alone um, puts me at an advantage. Um, the fact that education was uplifted as the thing that you do after you graduate high school, whether or not I wanted or knew what I wanted to pursue Um, was not as important as that there was this other goal this loftier goal Um, many people don't have that many people feel they have no other choice but to make it on the streets and they're not going to subject themselves to homelessness so they're going to make a decision to take from others Mm -hmm. Um, where am I going with all of this Uh, just that you know, going back to your point of we are we are so much more than just the, the cognitive decisions, you know, that we make. Um, music, like you should ask a person like, what are you listening to? This concept in EMDR of bilaterally stimulating with the purpose of then um, integrating a new belief system into a person ought to be applied to the very concept of what are you listening to when you work out? Because working out involves bilateral stimulation like, to the hundredth degree and in my own spiritual practice of being conscientious of the input you know we are gifted with these brains that are designed to receive the information interpret the information synthesize it and then determine if a behavioral shift needs to be made out of that but on a spiritual level like it's it, it, it's that whole concept of what you're Watch your thoughts; they become your words. Watch your words; they they become your actions. Watch your actions; they they become a set pattern of behaviors that then make up who you are as a person. Watch your personality. You know, at that, at, if we can catch it at the thought, and we are mindful of the thoughts we entertain, we are mindful of the music that we listen to. We are mindful of the message that we flippantly go. Oh, let me stay open to this idea. Uh, open-mindedness is great, but not if you don't know the impact under which or, or the, inf- the degree of influence that that message is going to have on your brain. Mm-hmm. And then in a sense, our behavior really does influence how we feel about ourselves. And then it, it can be damaging to the spirit. And so many of the people that I work with, are um, they've they never been taught how to recognize patterns and how to make choices that support a goal because there's, there's just been no goal to yeah. achieve.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that interlocking system of, you know, thoughts impact behaviors, impact emotions, impact relationships, impact self-concept, impact thoughts. And, uh, and all of that can kind of just cycle if you're not aware of it. Like if you're lacking awareness and lacking a the vision, then you can just kind of stay stuck there. And and it can be kind of hard to uproot. So I'd love to hear more from you on this. And so again, kind of with this idea of, on the one hand, thoughts are really important uh what we think really matters uh there's there's a thought in 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 orthodox uh orthodox practice thought that all of our thoughts come to us and then we talk about the 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 passions as these things that um are not like necessarily inherent desires but they're these things that work upon us and so so we talk a lot about like what you're talking about what do you what, do you, what are you doing with your time? What are you listening to? What are you consuming? What are you opening your mind to receive? What are you entertaining? That's a really big deal because the things that come into your mind that you allow there, that you allow to take root, end up having a huge impact. So, so here there there's that reality on the one hand. Uh, and then right next to it, just as true, is a sense that we're more than just our minds. Where we're all of these other things. I'd love to hear more from you. Like, what are some ways that you walk with people on the journey from, like, I'm up in my head, I'm so intellectually focused, I think I just need to think my way out of things, into a more, I'm aware of my body, I'm aware of my emotions, I'm aware of my relationships. Um, How would you you approach that?
1: Hmm.
0: Well, for me, I feel like,
1: my experiences with with the client that I'm primarily, the demographic I'm primarily talking about, it's actually quite flipped. They're not thinking, they're feeling. The primary emotion that's running the show is fear. It's not, you know, when when you look at a person um, person's behaviors, usually the behavior that drives the violence, that lock, that, that causes or leads to the incarceration um, is because the anger a turn where it became rage and so we've all not we've all but most clinicians are familiar with that iceberg diagram where like the anger is just the surface emotion it's what you see but what lies beneath the surface is really what we've got to evaluate and and battle with and grapple with and um, fear and pain are often those two primary emotions that, that run that anger and in the population of people it just. Just the level of hypervigilance to survive a sentence. Every move has to be watched, every conversation assessed, every possession well monitored because the perceived threat that at any given moment, someone could hurt you, take what you have, um, call you a bitch and that requires an action on your part. Or there's another gang affiliated member serving time who operates from the same or affiliates with the same gang. And now you have a moral um, ethical obligation in the code to do something about it. So fear, that spirit of fear, going back to anxiety, like that's the thing to address. Exposure therapy. Um, one of the things that I do with these guys, we're terrified of certain public places particularly in the rough parts of downtown in the rough parts of downtown there's naturally homeless individuals so when you do homeless, homeless outreach and you tell them you're taking your children with you their first thing is why would you do that let alone take a handout from any one of these homeless people who are likely to want to reciprocate that gift that receive and that gift exchange with you and I've, I've been there <laughs> with this population and, and they'll tell me the do's and don'ts of the downtown. And I say, you, you don't get to dictate, your fear doesn't get to dictate my love, what my love is capable of. Your fear does not get to dictate the capacity that my love has to be extended to others. And, and you, don't, you don't say that obviously in a, in a cold hearted way. You, you invite them to take part in the opportunity to do the same and once they're exposed to that you see the fear lesson like the, I, I guess to your point fear the emotion of fear does drive a cognitive process of these are the things to look out for um but if but it's also very,
0: yeah but it's also a very embodied process also
1: correct yeah exactly so yeah, it's desensitization. A lot of desensitization, and you can't do a lot of desensitization in the confines of
0: four walls. You just can't. Um, yeah. And so well,
1: mentorship. With,
0: yeah. Well, with what you're talking about, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking about it's what um, one of the New Testament writers. He talks about perfect love cast out of fear, and you know when you talk about kind of leading into the relationship with with love, which you could maybe understand as as an unconditional presence, as an unconditional welcome. Uh, I mean, I mean, getting back to like attachment theory and everything. I mean, that's like super strengthening healing, anyway. Um, but it sounds like inviting someone out of that 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 fear cycle. Yeah, it's not going to happen just in like the intellectual space of you know four walls and dialogue, but in the I'm in the presence of someone who's present with me, or we're going and we're walking together, or there's. There's this, you know, true human connection, maybe with some actual physical movement um, that all seems to accentuate the process. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And you can, it doesn't have to be as uh, out there as the example I provided, simply making the decision to um, take the, the bus route from point A to point B can be the difference between that individual going out and stealing a car or accessing very reasonably priced public transportation to get to their destination. If fear is operating or or driving them away from the decision to try public transportation, and I can go into detail as to why that's such a feared thing, (laughs) you know, lack of control. You're with a bunch of strangers in a confined space. You have to carry a firearm at all times because any one of these other people could have a firearm. And until you take that person and say, let's go do this together and expose them, they're inclined to believe that what they've conjured up to be the reality is the reality. It's just their perceived reality. And it it redefines what your relationship has to look like with the client to impact change. Um, And again, I'm I'm talking about a specific demographic. I know not every client deals with that level of fear, that primal fear um but you can sim- you you can kind of dissect that further or or find these offshoots where that can apply with um milder seemingly mild milder levels of anxiety
0: you know yeah absolutely i mean when you when you're thinking about different uh demographics and um the thing people are afraid of most uh you know for for me it, it in my group it's not not usually people who are afraid of public tra- transportation or, or, or getting shot out on the streets, but it's people who have really hurt their partner or in some way. And they're really afraid to own that or really afraid to confess a wrong or really afraid yeah. to like open up and, and share an emotion and to a debilitating degree sometimes. So yeah, we might, we might look at that and say, Oh, that's not the same kind of threat. Cause you know, their life's not in danger, but Like internally, chemical-wise, I mean, the the fear part—that's afraid of saying, "Hey, I was wrong." Probably is going off just as brightly as you know your folks who are like afraid of getting shot at. Uh, And And where that where those two
1: examples intersect, Reese, is this concept of um, grace, which is going back to the spiritual. I, I think the whole point of life is to receive grace and to give grace. And if you really evaluate what Christ said while here. On planet Earth, still love Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? Through patience, kindness, compassion, through the eyes of grace. These individuals are people just in general, whether they've caused harm to a direct family member, like in the DV situation, the acknowledgement of that wrong is not something they grapple with. It's what it does to them when they have no grace. And that's what can lead to a destructive pattern of behaviors that look like they just don't care when it's really, they care too much and they're bearing the burden all on their own Mm -hmm. without reliance on a savior.
0: Yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah, it's not that they don't care. It's often that they, they do have a sense of right and wrong and they have a sense for, Oh, I, I see, I really see the damage that I did and I'm really, really actually sad about it. And, uh, and, and everything. But, but it's, uh, it's the difference between what we consider like an unhealthy toxic shame that doesn't believe change can happen. And what in the new Testament they sometimes talk about is like a godly sorrow that leads to repentance or, uh, and so, so, sometimes in orthodox circles, they, they, they use the word shame a little bit differently than we do. It's like not always like a bad thing. Like I think sometimes they use it the way I use the word, the word remorse, but there's a sense mm-hmm. of, if I can weep for my sins, that's a healthy thing. It's a healthy start. But then for, for us, like we're in this tradition that has a built-in uh, protocol around that. Like you sin, you weep, weep for your sin, you go to confession, you go to repent to the person. And so there's a very built-in structure. You don't get left in your wallowing or, or in your sorrow. Uh, and I perceive that that's a thing that's missing for a lot of people. It's It's not normalized. It's not structured to recognize the wrong that you've done to a person and then actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just, we're stuck in this, well, what if they reject me and I have to posture and I have to look a certain way and that feeling itself is just so big and feels so terrible. Like I'm afraid to face it when actually it would be the facing of it. That would be like the most healing thing.
1: I think that people are afraid to, to verbalize what they've done because they hate what they've done. And, um, Going back to the example of this individual we're mentoring right now, I can remember this time we were in a public park and this woman comes up to us and she goes, are those your daughters right there? And they're playing in a fountain and they're bathing suits. I'm like, yeah. She's like, that man over there is taking a picture of them. <laughs> this guy I'm mentoring gets up. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Goes over, whispers a little something in his ear, comes back and has a seat and the guy's gone and the phone is gone. And I was like, what did you say? He's like, and that remains between him and I. (laughs) (laughs) Something like, you see that ankle monitor down there? Do you really think I'm afraid to go back to the place that I got this? Uh Um, But what you see in that moment is like that God complex, that that desire for like, that's wrong. Um, It's really easy to do that for others. Because a later conversation looked something like this, okay, it's not right for a full-grown man to be looking at children in this way, let alone documenting that for whatever purpose later on, but are we without? So much easier. And to me, when, when something out there, some person out there brings attention, we have to go here as well because that triggered something within us that we don't like because it's relatable because it's familiar. And so we are much quicker to reconcile the wrongs of others than we are the wrongs of ourselves, the, the practice, getting people to embrace the concept that it's okay to have all the, the expansion of the vast emotions that surround our actions and to talk about it. Like, isn't that what therapy is? <laughs> it's confession. <laughs> it it's and a, functions like that very much. It, mm-hmm but i think the the mental health world sometimes has a hard time striking the balance between maintaining a state of all the bad that's happened to me without examining all the hurt that i too have caused
0: Mm -hmm.
1: myself and others and you can you can keep people in that victim stance for longer than necessary and rob them of precious time rob yourself of precious time if so you're not able to see uh, while it's important to attend to the emotions surrounding how they've been wrong, that's that's the entrance into examination of the self and how the spirit's been affected by self-inflicted harm or harm inflicted on self by virtue of actions on another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it all, it all kind of comes back to who am I outside of what I've done. Who am I outside of what I believe myself to be as a res- result of what others have done to me?
0: Mm. Yeah. It seems like it comes back to that, that, yeah, that, that identity piece. And so being able to, to observe what's going on, uh, we've been hurt, but we are not that hurt. We've hurt others, but we're not essentially the parts of us that, that have hurt others. You know, we need, to take responsibility for that. And if we've broken something, we need to repair it. Absolutely. And if we've been hurt, oftentimes we need to take responsibility for our own healing processes. But part of why we can do that is because we are something deeper or something divine or something really powerful inside. And um, and that that shift, that shift seems to be the thing that, really makes a difference if i if i can really if i can really know who i am then i can look at these things that i've done and they might be really egregious and really terrible but i can look at them and not die because i know well that's not the essence of me it is something i need to actively work to repair and i am responsible for it but it is not me Hmm. the actual me is something really good really beautiful really powerful
1: Absolutely, and then getting people to understand that that part is still accessible, because a lot of times it's like I can't go back to that. A lot of the narrative I hear is that me is dead, that me is gone. By by, who's like who's making that decision? Well, well, I am. Based on what? Based on the things I've done, which you've identified is not who you are. So then. What's stopping you? <laughs> and again, I think that's where that, that grace comes in. You can't, we can't shoulder this on our own. Mm. Um, and that gives a perfect entryway into talking about the spiritual health uh, and people have to de- identify what they're okay with. You, you, you throw the word spiritual out there and living in a place like Colorado Springs, there's the automatic assumption that you're like a Judeo-Christian um, and then it's what church do you go to and what? <laughs> What pastor do you follow? And to eliminate the distraction, you really have to be conscientious and careful about what you're trying to imply and needs addressing. Um, spiritual is a lot safer a term, but a lot of people don't even know what that means. And it's just a a, a term that we've coined to be like, oh yeah, I can join in on the conversation. I'm a spiritual person. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but, but what does that mean? What shapes the, oh, like what not shapes the spirit? Because I think, I think who we really are has always been there. That's why when Christ said, "You know, let the children come to me," it's because they uh, they don't know. They haven't been contaminated by life enough to have lost a sense of their identity. Um, it's more like what what have we done since our entry onto planet Earth that <laughs> have blockaded access to what we really are and get people to see that acknowledge that there's really only one place they can go with that load the foot of the cross
0: yeah you
1: know the demonstration i'll I'll even tell clients what let's let's take let's take this idea that jesus was a real person out of your head for a second because that's sometimes people get locked up in the cognitive right they' they're, they're like well let's let's first prove that jesus is real well let's just assume he is based off of what well based off the spirit that was left behind after his resurrection to govern many of the decisions that you say you love about me you think that's a me thing <laughs> you really think that zach cares about you <laughs> I don't <laughs> I, I care about what you do for me, you know, but empty myself of who I am of, of the of that inflated concept and and allow access of, of the spirit to govern the decisions I make, I'm now a conduit strict and, and solely that, through which the spirit can all that God can operate to reach people. Now let me back up by saying that take Jesus out of the picture for a second and in terms of whether or not this man was real. What did he teach? What's the principle there? Because the lessons that just the other day I was visiting Ozzy and, and he's identified um, Luciferian. That's, that's just his religion. So we, we are very opposed when it comes to the topic of spirituality. And the other day he goes, You know, we're talking about his transition out of jail and um, paroling out to live with us. And um, I'm like, Are you ready for this? He's like, I I think I am. (laughs) How do we get onto this topic of, of a comment he made to me? Um, Because I was, I was challenging him. He was telling me dad being here as long as I have has made me hard, like hard, hard of heart. Like I, I don't look at people with the same compassion I once could, even if I wanted to. And I was, telling him it's because you haven't reconciled with yourself the things that you've done that have brought you here and so the focus has to be on what others have done because that's the safer way to process what you've done if you can make something right in someone else's life get someone else to see the error of their ways in a sense you'd have to say that there's some level of introspection going on there he said but yeah 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 i can't do that because you're a man of god you can do that, I can't do that. I said, that's so interesting because just a second ago, you asked me if I would legally adopt you. and You want a man of God to legally adopt you? <laughs> Why don't you just go straight to the man himself and be adopted <laughs> in this kingdom? Like, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's interesting because I, I, don't, I don't care how people, what people cognitively say that they are. They know who they are. And I don't care what name that they go by to, I, to make sense of that for them in the moment, wherever they are. Um, in that moment, we saw completely eye to eye. In a sense like, I want what you want. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. peaceful about what you have. Yeah, I want this, to live with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's this inherent knowing of what is real and of what is true. and <laughs> uh, Or, you know, like there's a way St. Paul talks about, like all creation declares. These, these realities and there, there's a way where everyone has access to the truth but not everyone opens themselves to it and some people might act, actively try, try to obscure it and again for, for reasons for you know because they've been hurt because they've been lied to betrayed like a whole lot of reasons you know so someone who is actively hiding from truth or rejecting <laughs> truth you know it's not because they're an evil person there's there's good reasons painful reasons probably why they do that but um, but yeah, like you're saying, there, yeah. there can definitely be this. Yeah, if we if we really if we really calm down and really be with each other, there can be this sense of there there is something shared, some shared yeah. insight there, and a lot more
1: shared than not.
0: Yeah, you know, oh, absolutely. Oh, it's again when you were talking about you know being, being that conduit of grace. There's something uh, really similar that happens in in Orthodox practice when we when we practice the veneration of the saints. Um, because you know, uh, to the outside observer, it'll look like saying, Okay, so we're, we're crossing ourselves, making a prostration, you know, kissing this painting. Um, but what it is, it's, um, it's you know, using the medium of the wooden paint to give honor to here's this saint that's depicted. Uh, and the idea is like, you know, the honor goes to the person, and then going to the person goes to God who gave them the grace to do it. And so, hmm. in, in our understanding. Uh, you know, we're not worshiping the saints, we're not praying to the saints, you know, kind of talking with them, but there's a sense of everything they are is by God's grace. Hmm. You know, everything that made the Virgin Mary the Virgin Mary, everything that made Saint Sarah from Sarov who he was, everything that made you know, you know, Saint Herman, etc., everything that made them who they are was by God's grace. And so our, our sense of when we practice this veneration is very much saying, you know, God is good, God is glorious, God has done great things, and we're giving honor to one particular work of that grace right now. And and there is a sense too. Um, you know, we have our like capital S, you know, canonized saints, but there's a sense where like everyone in the church is a saint, is now a conduit of that grace. And so we we see ourselves as co-creators, co-participants in, in the work of Christ. And that becomes the point of the Christian life is to participate more and more to take on more and more of his qualities, his characteristics, you know, one of our, one of our fathers has said, you know, to become by grace what Christ is by nature and that then becomes the trajectory of the Christian life. So, you know, (laughs) you're talking about, you know, grace and being that conduit. I'm like, yes, yes, I affirm. Yeah. (laughs) That's, uh, that's
1: great. The way that you explained it, that really resonated in a way that I could relate to like, Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah.
0: So, so talking around these things, talking around why the spiritual sense matters, why the mind matters, why paying attention to thoughts matters, why having relationships matters, and then all all of these things as being key components in how we how we heal. You know, not just how we like break a bad habit, but how we really become the fullness of who we are meant to be as people. Um, if uh, if a listener is thinking, huh, there's, there's something here. I want to start something, take some sort of action, start a practice, start reading some, something, 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 um, what would be some like initial steps that you'd recommend? And then I say that carefully because that there's the risk of like reducing it all to like a checklist or, uh, sure. Oh, here's, you know, 16 easy steps to spiritual enlightenment. But it's uh-huh. not that at all. It's uh-huh. more like, here's a way of life that we're inviting you into. Um, well, like, what what feels like, uh, an entry point that some people might be able to access. The
1: role of a provider is really to help the client see what they can. Um, And I'm not saying that the listeners are clients. I'm just saying people, let let me take the word client out of it. People, when, when asking for help, are essentially asking you, if they're coming to you, tell me what I don't know. The thing is, you know. So slow down, that's the first step. And I don't think that that is a checklist thing. All right, something's calling your attention. If you're hearing something here that goes, why is that resonating with me? Well, slow down and figure out why. And the answer will come in the stillness. Um, Elimination of distractions. There's a difference even just wearing these headphones there's ambient noise all around this building. I can't hear it right now. I can hear your voice in my ears. I can, I can, uh, it, I can connect even through this virtual platform in a much better way than if I had taken these off. Like that changes everything. Uh, now I hear my voice <laughs> echoing in this room. So um, trust in the in the spirit of your intuition because the answers are there. And, and essentially that is, that is for each of us to figure out what that checklist looks like. Um, you can't obtain someone else's success by following in their shadow. That's their story. That's their written destiny, if you will. Mm-hmm. You need to find your own. Each and every single one of us has gifts, talents, and abilities that if not used, Will will end in the result of much regret on our deathbed, if we get a deathbed. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be my encouragement to the listener, not to get all morbid there. But it, it um, you have this life, and we have been dead much longer than we've been alive. As in, as in our memory of occupying this planet, I don't know what came before this where, where I was, where my spirit was, but, but I, I've had this 39 years on this planet to learn all I have now. And if I could have gone back, the only thing I would have done differently was to have slowed down a little bit more and introspect and figure out what it is that I am designed with a purpose to do and to fulfill.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think it's morbid at all to, to, to reference death. I mean, you mentioned it right at the beginning, the sense of you know, death being inevi- inevitable. And it's, it's, a, it's a reality. It's, it's not a, a, a... Everyone dies. It's the great equalizer. And mm-hmm. you know, wise is a person who actively prepares to die well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so the only, And one of the ways to die well is to live well. Yeah. And to access those gifts, talents, and abilities and put them to use. Yeah. Today, today, and I don't. I don't think that's that's that hard. Uh, it could be as simple as setting a a greater intention for quality time with your children, if you have children. It could be taking your dog for a walk and <laughs> appreciating the scenery, um, and and quieting down the noise to be able to to look inward more. Mm. It could be. Maybe for the person who feels like they're caving in on themselves, like they there's too much focus inward, to well, give back. Go and do something for someone and learn. I will say much of much of my spiritual growth has been in direct service to people I would never normally associate with. I know that sounds really limiting and ignorant and close-minded of me, but the people that have come in my path both indirectly and directly by my line of work have been my greatest teachers. And we don't even pardon my language, this is just what they say they only not with the same God. <laughs> you know? Um, but there's still there's still so much to to glean and learn and and appreciate. About understanding someone else's journey, and and in a way, they will. In moments like you said, where you have that shared spirit, that share that commonality, you you'll find there to be. What am I trying to say here? That it just kind of ignites further um, something that you've known within yourself, but maybe haven't known to the depth that mm-hmm. uh, someone from a completely different walk of life has been able to expose.
0: Yeah. So I'm hearing that, and again, not to reduce this to a formula, but mm-hmm. hearing connection, being with people, challenging yourself to be with new kinds of people, to be slow, to be present, to be quiet with people, and to be slow, to be present, to be quiet with it, with your own self, and to do that, you know, eliminating distractions, and that could mean eliminating substances, it could mean eliminating habits, it could mean eliminating noise, music. Media could mean eliminating items. As I'm in a very cluttered room, <laughs> very much feeling that. Uh, yeah. The, so in that, uh, again, non-formulaic, but there's a way of life that you're talking around, like a living, living a living a living a simple life. Mm. Uh, you, know, you know, you know, Saint Paul he talks about this too. You know, aspire to live a quiet life, to work with your hands, and maybe we ought to pay more attention to that. Mm. Speaking of slowing down, uh, I need to go away. <laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate this, and I really appreciate the, the, the direction this went and a lot of your insight. Uh, so if a listener wanted to reach out to you, stay in touch in some way, uh, where are you on the internet, or how could you be contacted?
1: I, I had full intention of when I set up my website to put together all the platforms to help people kind of gain access to some of the things we're talking about. Um, and I just have, have lacked the time, but you, I can be found <laughs> if you type in the name of my private practice and the state in which I reside, Colorado. Uh, Colorado Springs, specifically. Um, so if you do if you do a Google search of Mind Renewal, and it'll take you directly to the website. Uh, and on there, there are direct links to Facebook and Instagram, but I do not post as regularly as I would like. Uh, But yeah, if you know somebody in the area that you think could benefit from some of the services we provide, from couples counseling to individual counseling to life coaching, a more solution-focused approach to dealing with um, that maybe stuck pattern of behaviors you've fallen into, or to explore more about what neurofeedback is and even schedule a free 45-minute consultation, um, yeah, mindreneural.com. Is
0: where you okay. would want to go. All right. There you go. Up in the mountains. It's good stuff. Yes. All right. Well, I'll have the info in the liner notes. And uh, I'll also have my own. If the listener would like to, if you, if you value this sort of conversation, this sort of discussion, uh, please join our community. You can support me with some dollars at slash outer circle. You can follow me on Instagram at on counseling. Uh, I also don't post as much as they probably should, but I'm trying to more and more, as we've now said, like, hey, get off social media some. We're trying to get on social media. It's a weird, it's a weird kind of joke. Uh, but I do appreciate the, the ratings, the reviews, the comments, and all of the feedback. It's been great. So thank you, everyone, for being with us. Thank,
1: thank you, you for Dr. having me.
0: You too. Thank you.